0: So of course I would say I've been very lucky because everybody always says they've been lucky. But I also recognize that luck is, luck is about opportunity, of course. It's about privilege, of course. You know, some of my accidents of birth, I got a free education, so I was the first in my family to go to university. I have had free healthcare at important times of my life. But also those opportunities have to meet preparation. And some of that is is about working hard, some of that is about grasping opportunity, some of that is recognising that you're going to sink or swim, and sometimes you're going to sink, and saying yes, just because you haven't doesn't mean you can't. There's a first time for everything.
1: Welcome to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I get to understand more about how you define and achieve success, Is it about good ideas, great leadership, luck or a combination of all of those? Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Stevie Spring, who chairs the British Council and the mental health care charity Mind. Stevie, welcome. And before you even say anything, I think I have to point out for the sake of of clarity and openness, you and I are not exactly strangers.
0: No, we're not. We're not strangers. I have have known you a very, 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 very long time since you were a little boy.
1: <laughs> um and i've grown into a slightly craggy older adult now right you have. and you haven't aged at all <laughs> now stevie apart from obviously us having known each other for many many years stevie is amongst other things the non-executive director for the co-op group she also chairs the tech scale up kinomo and In addition to all this, previously, she held a number of very senior positions in major companies, including as chief executive of Clear Channel, the live events company. And she also was a senior executive at Future, where she led to its restructure and digital transformation. Stevie was named by GQ magazine as one of the UK's 100 Most Connected Women. She's also on the Telegraph de Bretts list of Britain's 500 most influential people. And also she has CBE after her name, having been awarded the honour in the 2017 Queen's Birthday Honours. Stevie, uh, fantastic to talk to you um, and lovely to see you. I want to start by pointing out something that I noticed about your your career because there's two tracks as, as far as I see it. Is there's the things that you have done, as it were, for large companies, and also there's this this, this golden thread that seems to run through your whole career has having worked in nonprofits. Can you tell me about where that where that comes from?
0: So I joined my first board at the age of seven. It's an
1: early start, it's an early start.
0: uh, An early start. My sister and I were raised, as you know, by a single parent, unusually in the 50s and 60s. My dad grew up in Camden Town. He worked for the railways. And one day my sister came home and she said, I want a bicycle. And my dad sat us both down and explained that, you know, he earned this much, the rent was this much, which left this much for special things. And if we bought a bicycle, it meant that we couldn't go to Butlins. So what do we want to do? And all three of us said, well, of course, we're going to go to Butlins because that benefits all three of us. And the bicycle only benefits Sandy. And that small conversation morphed into family board meetings, proper meetings. I was the treasurer because I was good at sums and my sister was the secretary and my dad was the chairman and he wrote the minutes Mm -hmm. so that taught us something really early on that he who controls the minutes controls the meeting the dog was the committee (laughs) and they they were proper meetings then after about a year so I must have only been about eight we used to add another topic under AOB For a discussion, so we talked about CND and the National Health Service. We talked about apartheid in South Africa. I remember that one really clearly. You know, all sorts of stuff. So we weren't just learning about choices and resource allocation and all of that stuff, which is the essence of business. But we learned about arguing a case. We learned about. You know, really understanding our role in the wider world. And what that did, Richard, is leave both me and my sister with this moral compass, but also a strong desire to make a difference. When I was 16, I got my first junior trustee role. Hmm. And all of the way through from 16 to 63, without a break, I have had this twin track career. Because I've, in addition to my commercial career, I've always had a not-for-profit charitable role. And for the last 30 years, that has been as chairman. So I've been chairman of the Groundwork Federation that works with some of the most deprived communities in the UK. And then I did a decade as Mummy Pudsey as chairman of Children in Need. And that meant I was working with and through a couple of thousand other charities And then more recently, as you said, I became chairman of MIND, the mental health charity, partly as payback, because one of the reasons that we were a uh, single parent family was Mm -hmm. because my mother, as you know, suffered very severe bipolar disorder. So she had disappeared off the scene when I was nine months old. So there was a degree of payback happening there.
1: You took your first junior trusteeship at the age of 16, and I wondered, listening to you there, how that influenced your career progression. You know, you were in advertising. Were there certain skills that you acquired through that which then helped you as you worked and you progressed through your career?
0: So so let's put altruism to one side for a second. I genuinely believe that being exposed to different businesses and different organisations in a safe learning space. If you are serving on the board of a charity, you have to learn board dynamics. You learn about board committees. You learn about the role of audit and risk and remuneration. You learn about how to challenge and support in equal measure. You learn about how to take colleagues with you in an argument, how to hold people to account. All of those skills which are sort of generic. So, in real terms, it's the best training course and the best learning it's possible to have. But as I say, in that safe space, and yes, it served me well, and it served me well in very direct ways as well. So, if I think back, the move from advertising into Clear Channel, and Clear Channel was my first proper CEO job, big PL. Big capital expenditure budget, lots of people, lots of different types of people. One of the reasons that I got that job was because the Groundwork Federation had relationships with local authorities all over the country.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I knew my way around Whitehall, I knew my way around planning rules and planning applications from, I started. Many minutes ago, as a lawyer. So, you put those two things together, and it allowed me a bridge out of advertising into what I call general and generic management. And I think the fact that I was comfortable with and known to a lot of local authorities and moving into a business, uh, which a big part of which was local authority street furniture. So, it was bus shelters and Toilet, public toilets and, you know, a couple of bike schemes and bins, we would swap the advertising rights and the advertising revenue and build tangible assets for local authorities. So if you look at the bus shelters with, you know, those wonderful six sheets, illuminated panels that look like the best type of magazine cover. Yeah the advertising from that pays for the bus shelter. Right. So we design and build and maintain and look after bus shelters. So and those contracts are well the biggest was with people like TfL Transport for London and um the other transport authorities but most of them were direct with local authorities. So it was a way for local authorities to improve the streetscape without having to find capital investment themselves, We put the capital in, and then it got paid back over very long contracts through advertising revenues.
1: I want to ask you about Clear Channel, because that was a company at which, what, 800,000 employees or more?
0: No, 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 no. In the the UK, we had about um, 1,500. A majority of them, it was a very interesting time for me because it was the first time that I really had to manage a diverse workforce. Uh, because a, a sizable proportion of them were, you know, men in white vans.
1: And I was going to ask you about that. Going into a company like that, in that position, dealing with a workforce like that as a woman, what challenges did that present?
0: Well, I think it helps that I'm called Stevie. And I think it's interesting that all day, every day, and still people expect to meet a bloke. And that's fine. That's I quite like the surprise element of that. Although I do still get quite upset when people write, you know, dear Mr. Spring, what a pleasure to meet you, because I sort of think "Mm, maybe I wasn't at that meeting. (laughs) I think that I was very aware of lots of the meetings in the city that I was going to, of trying to make a benefit out of the difference. You know, I think that we can have a broader conversation about what it feels like to be other to be, you know, female or gay or neurodiverse or black in the workplace. But female, I, you know, I purposefully would wear dresses and skirts to go for meetings in the city. And as recently as 18 months ago, uh, I was in the middle of doing quite a complex deal and we were selling a business. And I walked into this massive boardroom and all the lawyers were there and the bank advisors were there. and. Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. And I was very slightly late. I walked in and I literally burst out laughing because this, this table must have had 40, 45 people sitting around there, every single one of them, white, male, I promise you between 40 and maybe 50, 55, all wearing a shirt and tie. And I just I just laughed. And, and the guy who was hosting said to me, what's so funny? And I went, it's... 2019. That's what's so funny. You mentioned this
1: point about, you know, dressing in, in a skirt and so on. You read also about the counter, the way in which some women feel that they have to, to adopt an opposite posture, which is to almost masculinize, if you will, themselves. What's the power, therefore, of asserting your femininity in, in situations like that?
0: I think it's in those circumstances, Richard. Uh, for me, it's a uniform and a suit of armor. Go on. What do you mean by suit of armor? It's about owning your difference. I mean, when I was younger, I used to wear these vertiginous heels. I mean, I promise you, four and a half, five inch heels all day, every day. And I remember one day I was making the point of uh, my feet really hurt or whatever. And somebody said to me, Well, you know, why do you always wear those stupid shoes? And I said, Well, you know, I spend all day in meetings with, you know, six foot blokes and I'm five foot four and a half. Half is really important. So, you know, I think to have stature and authority, I need, you know, scale, I need height. And I promise you, everybody in the room just fell about laughing, thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. And it was only then that, you know, this sort of reassurance that you can have stature and presence and scale and own the room in ways other than your physicality.
1: You talked about going into that meeting where you were the only woman. We like to think that society has changed or at least is in the process of changing and the glass ceiling that has existed for women and indeed for others people of colour and so on, has, has, is cracking or has broken. You're implying that you don't see that from where you are.
0: One of the issues for me is I'm terribly impatient. And yes, of course, it's progressed enormously in my working life. But it feels bloody glacially slow, Richard. I mean, if you think that we are, what is it, 50 years away from the Equal Pay Act, And yet we are at least 50 years away from an inverted commas equal pay, not because of unequal pay, but because there are big, big, big role gaps. You know, when you look at the FTSE 100 and you go, oh, look, we've got four, five, you know, depending on who's just moved. Uh, I think at one point we had six women, praise be. When you look at and, and representation is important because, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And, you know, famously, I may be the first woman, but I will not be the last.
1: Oh, Kamala. Kamala Harris, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, go Harris. And, you know, quote, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. I think that that... Yes, the glass ceiling has some cracks, but, uh, you know, we were talking just before we came on air about the glass cliff.
1: What do you mean? Can you, what do you mean by the glass cliff?
0: I mean that when a company perceives almost that there's nothing left to lose, we may as well try a woman. Almost she is set up for failure. Or the other way of looking at it is the glass walls. You know, you're allowed into the party But there are glass walls that are stopping you dancing and participating fully. That sense of belonging rather than just being a sole representative. So when people talk about other on boards, you know, one woman, you're representing the entirety of what it means to be female. And God help you if you are not bloody brilliant Because then that allows people to say, oh, we tried a woman, she was useless. When I first went to Clear Channel, coming right back to that, I remember going in to meet the PA, the personal assistant that had worked for my predecessor and I had wanted to retain because I wanted somebody who knew their way around the business. And I remember going in to meet her and she sat there with her arms crossed, frowning and monosyllabic and in the end i sort of turned around and i said um lindy i can i can feel that we have a problem so let's get it out on the table let's talk about it and she said well you need to know that i worked for a woman before and i hated it Hmm. and i thought okay fine and i said okay have you ever worked for a man that you hated didn't get on with she went yeah of course Right. but it never occurs to you to raise that and say, "I never want to work for another man ever again. you know we need to find ways as leaders and managers and and colleagues to make our businesses welcoming of other so that other can belong and you know women are not really other they are fifty percent of the population
1: I want to ask you about how you define success because again there are these two linked branches to what you do so with nonprofits and also with profit-driven organizations the the point is is how do you define success for those kind of organizations versus organizations who are driven by satisfying their shareholders or whomever uh by the bottom line
0: you've conflated two issues there you've conflated organizational success and personal su- success So I'm going to lift and separate them out. So the co-op, you know, it's all about cooperating for a fairer world. It's a different way of doing business. It's investing back into the communities we serve. But we still have to balance cooperability with commerciality. So we do have to be commercially successful in order to do the good work in the community, to invest in co-op academies, to have a co-op foundation, Principles cost. So when you say we're the largest fair trade retailer in the country, fair trade costs more. When we say we only use British protein, not just you know selling it in fresh produce, but in our sandwiches, in our ready meals, you know, we've spent money on that. So, but you still have to get to inverted commas surplus, to be able to make those choices. So I think commercial and organisational success is is actually quite easy to define when you know your mission and you know your purpose. I think on a personal level, it becomes much more complex, because all success, all personal success is relative. You know, Mm. Obama... Less successful than Trump because Trump is richer than he is. That David Beckham, brilliant footballer, but he's never won Wimbledon. You know, how are you, what are you comparing yourself to? What's important to you? And, you know, of course, when you when you only look at the trappings of success, there's always going to be somebody who's got a bigger office and a faster car and earned more and, you know, all of that superficial stuff. But I think that if you look at certainly my personal view of success, Mm. it's broader and richer and deeper than that for me. So for me, it's about legacy. It's about making a difference. It's about paying back. It's about having a platform. Some of the commercial stuff that I do gives me a platform and gives me permission and opens doors to do other stuff. But it's also about, do I like myself? Um, Am I a good aunt, friend, partner, neighbour? Do I use the power that I have? And I recognise it took me a long time to say I have some power because I have some influence, because I have access to other people who can do things. So it's interesting when you said uh, at the beginning about GQ Top Connected, I use that for a purpose. I love connecting people. I love it. Mm. You know, I love putting people together so that they can make a difference. You know, you should meet so-and-so. You know, I did one only last night when one of my ex-board colleagues is running the Centre for Genocide and Holocaust Studies in America. And the CEO of the British Council, the current CEO, is going off to run the Coventry Centre for Peace Studies. And I just wrote to them both and said, you both have to meet. You can both achieve more together than you can separately. And not only do you have lots of work things in common, but you're both, you know, twinkly Irishmen, and, and you both know me. So, you know, there are three things that you can talk about and you should connect I love doing that because I sort of like to make one and one equal three. I like to make more of a difference.
1: What's the greatest mark of success for you personally? Where, where do you see the most important or significant thing that you have done across your, your career and, you know, also since the age of 16 being um, a junior trustee?
0: So, of course, I would say I've been very lucky because everybody always says they've been lucky. But I also recognise that that, you know, luck is... Luck is about opportunity, of course. It's about privilege, of course. You know, some of my accidents of birth. I was born white. I was born in a country that was not at war. I got a free education, so I was the first in my family to go to university. I have had free health care at important times of my life. So, you know, you put, put put that privilege into the lucky bucket, but also those opportunities have to meet preparation. And some of that is is about working hard. Some of that is about grasping opportunity. Some of that is recognising that you're going to sink or swim and sometimes you're going to sink and saying yes. And my mantra has always been, well, since I got rid of my imposter theory, just because you haven't doesn't mean you can't. There's a first time for everything. And so I'm a big believer in skills transference. And therefore, unlike most women and i'm I'm exaggerating to make a point, but you know most women, when they see a job advert, will go, "Oh, there are eight things on here, and I can only do seven of them."
1: Mm-hmm. whereas
0: men historically and uh usually will go, "Oh, I can do four of those, you know get in um and and i've always been unusual in that I will look at the list and say. Well, that's a list of eight things, but actually those four, I think are much more important and should be weighted accordingly. And therefore I'm going to apply because just because I haven't done the other four doesn't mean I can't, Mm. just means I haven't yet. So when people ask me if I can scuba dive, my answer will be, I don't know. I've never tried.
1: I think that distinction you make between men and women, how they approach the idea of whether they're qualified to do something. I mean, I see that you know, with women who I am very close to, you know, because I take exactly that view. Well, I, I'm qualified in five of those, but I can blag the other couple. Whereas as-
0: Get rid of that blag. It's not about blag. It's just because I haven't done them doesn't mean I can't do them or that I can't do them really well. If you give me the opportunity, I will do them well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. by
0: the way, those four things that I can do, if I look at that list of eight, those four are the most important things. I'll give you an example from Future, which was a public company. What they thought they were looking for was somebody with PLC experience, you know, of running a PLC, somebody with publishing experience, and somebody who had run an an American business because there was, you know, a big chunk of the revenues when I joined were from the States. And I was, no, no, no. Didn't mean I couldn't. Because what does it mean to run a PLC? It means that, you know, you have to have different governance regulations. You have to manage a different set of stakeholders. You have to under-promise and over-deliver. You have to be storyteller-in-chief. And, you know, I'm pretty good at telling a story. I'm not quite sure how we
1: draw this to a close because there's so much here I mean, does the CBE kind of, what was it like? I mean, did that matter to you when you got it? I think it's clearly amazing that you go there and you get this, this honour and stuff.
0: You know, it, it's, it's disingenuous to say anything other than going to the palace for my CBE was one of the best days ever. And my auntie Gladys, who lives in Hertfordshire, you know, she got up at five o'clock in the morning She'd got a new outfit. She'd had her hair done. She got a cab to us. And because we'd said that Auntie Gladys might need support, we were allowed to drive right in, right to the front of the inner palace. I mean, it, it, was, it was incredible. It was incredible. And it was important for family and it was important for friends. And it was important for me because it was... Because it was a recognition, actually, for charity work, not for the commercial work. And although that sounds the wrong way round, I think the fact that I got it for giving back pleased me.
1: Stevie, thank you very much. This has been the Success and Ideas podcast. If you've enjoyed this programme, then please do listen to others in this series and and also subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please share and and rate this programme. I'm Richard Myron, and this has been an Earshot Strategies production. Thank you.